Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so before we get into it, let me remind you that uh, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No, sir, it is not. Okay, so let's get into it. We have a couple of obituaries to start us out here. We have this first one here from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 20th, 2023. Richard Belzer, stand-up comic and sarcastic Law and Order detective dies. As investigator John Munch, the actor 78 was most prolific TV character of all time. By Christy Karras. Richard Belzer. A revered actor and comedian known for playing wisecracking detective John Munch on numerous TV series, including Homicide Life on the Street and Law and Order Special Victim Mu- Victims Unit, reportedly has died. He was 78. Belzer died Sunday at his home in Bozal, France, comedy writer Bill Sheft told The Hollywood Reporter. He had lots of health issues, and his last words were F you mother F, said Sheft, a longtime friend of the late entertainer. Before making a name for himself on the small screen, Belzer performed stand-up at comedy clubs such as Pips and uh, the Improv and Catch a Rising Star in New York City. He also served as a warm-up act on Saturday Night Live in the early days of the sketch's comedy program. Belzer debuted the beloved character of John Munch on the 1990s com- uh, drime- co- crime drama Homicide Life on the Street before revising- reprising the role for Homicide the Movie and Law and & Order Special Victims Unit. His sarcastic portrayal of Munch was so popular, Belzer also made cameos and guest appearances as the witty investigator in a number of other shows, including The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, 30 Rock, The Wire, Arrested Development, and The X-Files. During his career, Belzer's Munch surpassed Kelsey Grammer's Dr. Fraser Crane of Cheers and James Arness's Marshall Matt Dillon of Gunsmoke as the most prolific TV character of all time. After Munch retired on a landmark episode of SVU in 2013, Belzer penned a heartfelt essay bidding farewell to his on-screen alter ego for the Huffington Post. He returned to the show, however, for one final appearance in 2016. I'm truly blessed to have been in the company of so many remarkable people for such a long time, Belzer wrote in 2013. Yes, I am sad. Yes, it's bittersweet. But after 21 years, smart money is on Munch not totally disappearing from the face of the earth. If Sherlock Holmes can survive the Reichenbach Falls, then surely we can have we have not seen the last of Detective Sergeant John Munch. In a statement shared on Instagram, SVU star Mariska Hargitay remembered Belzer as a dear, dear friend. Christopher Melanie, who plays Detective Elliot Stabler on SVU, also tweeted, Goodbye, mon ami. I love you, in honor of his late co-star. I will miss you, your unique uh, light, and your singular take on this strange world, said Hargitay, who plays Detective Olivia Benson on SVU. I feel blessed to have known you and adored you and worked with you side by side for so many years. How lucky the angels are to have you. I can hear them laughing already. I love you so very much, now and forever. Prolific TV producer Dick Wolf who created SVU, hailed Belzer as a consummate professional who brought humor and joy into all of our lives. 
Richard Belzer's detective John Munch is one of television's iconic characters, Wolf wrote in a statement. I first worked with Richard on the Law & Order Homicide crossover, and I loved the character so much, I told Tom Fontana that I wanted to make him one of the original characters of SVU. The rest is history. We will all miss him very much. That was Richard Belzer, stand-up comic and sarcastic Law & Order detective dies by Christy Karras from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 20, 2023. Okay, we have another one here from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 23, 2023. Paul Berg, 1926-2023, pioneer of genetic engineering. Nobel laureate's work helped reshape cancer research and spawn biotech industry by John Johnson, Jr. Paul Berg, the Nobel Prize-winning biochemist whose groundbreaking experiments uh, in gene splicing reshaped cancer research and helped spawn the multi-billion-dollar biotechnology industry, has died at his home on the Stanford University campus. Berg's February 15 death was announced by the Stanford School of Medicine, which did not cite a cause. He was 96. The son of impoverished Russian immigrants, Berg was among the first to show that it was possible to manipulate the machinery of life to fight disease and create a range of genetically modified crops and organisms uh, that few imagined possible. His discoveries changed the way drugs are produced and transformed the whole industry of biotechnology, said Philip Paizo, the former dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, where Berg spent most of his career. Paul's work was not only not only had an impact uh, because of what he did in the lab, but also how much have a con he contributed to public policy, Paizo added. An example was his realization that the genetic engineering technique he pioneered could be used to, spear, to spread super pathogens around the world. In response, Berg halted his research and helped draft a moratorium on gene editing in the 1970s. Years later, he played a leading role in California's Proposition 71 campaign, which raised $3 billion for stem cell research, facing down critics from conservative religious groups who felt scientists were trying to play God. Scientists who synthesize genes by chemical techniques in the laboratories do not think of human DNA molecules as holy, Berg responded. Uh, despite his role as a scientific firebrand, Berg remained an essentially modest man who made it a policy uh, never to bring up his status as a Nobel winner. He violated the oath only once, he said, while trying to convince a merchant that his check would not bounce. Berg was born June 30, 1926, in Brooklyn, the eldest son, eldest of three sons of Harry and Sarah Brodsky Berg. After emigrating from Russia, Berg's father started a business manufacturing fur hats and coats but was never successful. Family uh, circumstances were modest to poor, Berg recalled. His mother encouraged his interest in science, but his father was dubious. Where are you going to make a living? When are you going to make a living? Science is like a hobby, he scoffed when his son decided to continue his education after high school. At Abraham Lincoln High School in Brooklyn, Berg was one of three students, including Arthur uh, Kornberg and Jerome uh, Curry, who would go on to win Nobel Prizes. He earned his doctorate at Western Reserve University, now Case Western Reserve, in Cleveland, then conducted postdoctoral work on in cancer research in Denmark. 
1956, he joined his schoolmate Kornberg's lab at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis as assistant professor of microbiology. Three years later, Stanford came calling. The university medical school planned to open a new department of biochemistry with the idea of linking scientists to clinicians, a philosophy Burke called bench to bedside. Uh, if I can bring my entire department, I will come, Kornberg said, uh, according to Berg. Be our guest, bring your crew, was Stanford's response. Seven young, ambitious investigators decamped from Missouri to California, around, arousing some criticism in academia at the time. But according to Berg, it proved to be a fortuitous and historic development. We could do lots of things that you couldn't do in other places because it would have been against the prevailing culture, Burke said. But at Stanford, we made our own culture. In the late 1960s, he began experimenting with viruses to find out how they altered genes and how the normal cells turned cancerous. He cut the DNA of a monkey virus into pieces and inserted them into a second virus uh, that infects a common human intestinal bacterium called E. coli creating a shared strand of DNA. The process became popularly known as recombinant DNA. Berg planned to smuggle the new DNA chain into the E. coli bacterium, but suddenly realized the danger of inserting a tumor gene into a bacterium that exists everywhere in the environment, both in animals and humans. If it ever got out of the laboratory, the results could be catastrophic. He stopped his research and called for an internal international conference to discuss the potential biohazards of recombinant DNA molecules. The meeting of Asilomar in Pacific Grove, California in 1975 brought together 100 scientists from 16 countries, resulting in a temporary moratorium on gene editing until the process could, uh, could be proved safe. The burgeoning biotechnology industry was less cautious. In 1976, Gen Genetech was founded to take advantage of the new discoveries. In its initial public offering in 1980, set a Wall Street record for the fastest rise in price per share, $35 to $89 in 20 minutes. Today, the industry is an international behemoth uh, employing thousands in research on genetic engineering. The same year Genetech went public, uh, Berg received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, sharing it with Walter Gilbert and Frederick Sanger honored for their research on nucleic acids. While admitting the award opened doors, Berg was self-conscious about it, finding it hard to tell people that he was a noblest. Berg never used his newfound biotechnology well to uh, buy an opulent home in Silicon Valley. Instead, he continued to live with his wife Mildred in the simple house on campus he bought for $25,000. His only indulgence was modern art, particularly pieces by Robert Motherwell. When a new learning center was to be built on campus, he donated $4 million to the project, saying it was only appropriate that he give back to for all the honors Stanford has brought him. He also raised $50 million for the Beckman Center for Molecular and Genetic Medicine, which opened at Stanford in 1989. Berg took a leading role in the public furor over the use of stem cells to cure disease. Scientists have discovered that embryonic stem cells, basically a cluster of cells in a few days old embryo called, blastos called a blastocyst, could turn into every kind of cell and organ in the body. In just one example, it was thought of 
It was thought that if stem cells could be made to pr produce healthy pancreatic cells, juvenile diabetes might be cured. President George W. Bush restricted the use of federal funds in stem cell research after several religious groups protested that a days-old embryo was a human life. Berg was exasperated. It's what I call un-American to even think of those terms, he said of Bush's decision. He pointed out that blastocysts, which came from fertility clinics, were going to be destroyed anyway. He subsequently became a leading advocate of California's Proposition 71 in 2004, which replaced federal research dollars with state taxpayer money. Stem cell cures how, uh, proved elusive, however. In a 2017 oral history in interview in Stanford, Berg admitted that proposition backers may have oversold the life-saving benefits of stem cells. Can you repair a heart after a heart attack with stem cells, he asked. That clearly didn't work, but there are a lot of things still out there. After his official retirement in 2000, Berg remained active. Even in his 90s, he went to the campus office every day and offered advice on changes in the medical school curriculum. Berg was the Vivian K. and Robert W. Cahill Professor of Cancer Research Emeritus. Among other honors, he was the California Scientist of the Year in 1963, a member of the National Association of Science, and a past president of the American Society of Biological Chemists. He won the Henry G. Kaiser Teaching Award at Stanford twice, was a foreign uh, member of the French Academy of Sciences and the Royal Society, won the National Medal of Science, and was a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Berger survived by his son Jack and his brother John. His wife Mildred uh, Levy died in 2021. That was Paul Berg, 1926 to 2023, pioneer of genetic engineering, by John Johnson Jr. from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. All right, we got a couple of uh, Israel stories here. First, we start off with an opinion article from the Los Angeles Times Opinion section, Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Netanyahu's Israel is losing me. The two-state solutions collapse and new, a new coalition's threat to democracy have made the nation unrecognizable. By Nicholas Goldberg. For many, for many years, I believe the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was fixable that a final resolution could and ultimately would be found in the creation of two independent sovereign states. I thought that it was, all in all, the fairest but also the most pragmatic solution, and that both sides would make it happen sooner rather than later, despite the obvious obstacles. I no longer believe that. I no longer have faith in good intentions or even the power of pragmatism. The blows to my faith have been inflicted over the years by both sides, but most recently by Israel, which has become an unrecognizable country as it has moved steadily rightward. The new government in Israel under Benjamin Netanyahu, already the country's longest-serving prime minister, is provocative, belligerent, and beyond the pale. It is the most right-wing, illiberal government in Israeli history. The new coalition proposal weak to weaken the judiciary, which is moving forward in the Knesset or parliament, drove 100,000 protesters into the streets last week and poses a serious threat to Israeli democracy. But that's only part of the problem. Israel is also engaged in ongoing uh, actions targeting human rights groups and other non-governmental or, uh, non organizations. 
whittling away at free speech and marginalizing its Arab population. The Palestinians who live in Israel have always been treated as second-class citizens, and that continues. As for the treatment of Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, let's just say I was dismayed but not surprised when Human Rights Watch in 2021 declared it abusive and discriminatory and said it met the legal definition of apartheid. But the new government threatens to take all that to a new level. It includes ultra-nationalists who hope to annex the West Bank entirely rather than work toward peace. It includes theocrats who want Judaism, not secular law, and individual rights to guide the state. Itamar bin Givur, the new cabinet minister for national security, was barred from serving in the army because of his extremism and was convicted of racist incitement and supporting a terrorist group. Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, who once said it was a mistake that Israel didn't expel more Arabs when it was founded, believes the land of Israel, including the occupied territories, was promised to the Jews by God. He is not alone in that belief. Netanyahu has made extraordinary deals with these extremists to remain in power and, according to some, to avoid or delay his corruption trial on bribery and fraud charges. If I'm... If I'm the kind of American Jew Israel hopes to keep on its side, it's not doing a great job. Frankly, the idea of billions of dollars in American aid being dispatched to Israel each year offends me given that it won't live by basic rules of international law, preserve its democratic rules and institutions, or drag itself to the table to work out a good faith resolution to the century-old conflict with the Palestinians. I am not a newcomer to this subject. I lived in Jerusalem as a correspondent, spending time with West Bank settlers, right-wing Likudniks, leftist legislators, and activists in Haradim. I covered many deadly terrorist attacks, sometimes arriving when the bodies were still on the ground. I covered Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin's assassination and interviewed Netanyahu several times after he became Prime Minister in 1996. I also spent time with Palestinians whose homes had been demolished by Israel, Israeli army. I crossed the checkpoints with Palestinian workers, uh, wandered uh, the refuge camps of the Gaza Strip and the villages of the West Bank, talked to Hamas leaders, and asked questions of Palestinian Authority President Yasser Arafat. At that time, many people on both sides believed that peace was on its way, despite the bombings, assassinations, and bitter rejectionism. But we were naive. Today, most people believe that the creation of two separate states is simply not going to happen in the foreseeable future, if ever. Instead, the harsh, unjust, and illegal occupation of Palestinian territory, which has now lasted for 56 years, will continue indefinitely. That can't be attributed entirely to the new government's belligerence. Over many years, Israel has allowed more than 450 settlers to establish communities in the occupied West Bank and many more in East Jerusalem, making a territorially contiguous uh, Palestinian state almost inconceivable. A poll released last month showed that the two-state solution is now supported by only about a third of Israeli Jews and a third of Palestinians, the lowest level since the early 90s. There have been no serious peace, peace talks for years. But this government will make matters worse and more volatile. Already, violence is rising again. Some experts predict a third intifada. 
if in some small remote corner of my brain i haven't absolutely given up hoping that the possibility of two states might be brought back from the dead perhaps in 10 25 or 50 years it's only because i don't see a workable alternative but i expect no progress for a long long time i don't mean to suggest that israel doesn't have the right to insist vehemently on reasonable protections for its security nor do i mean to absolve the palestinians of all blame for the conflict they've blown their share of opportunities the terrorist attacks against civilians undertaken by hamas and other militant groups are ruthless and heartbreaking the Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas has done an awful job of representing its people effectively. But at the moment, it's Israel that has me despondent. Frankly, I just can't go on wishing fruitlessly for a peace talk that has, year after year, seen farther and farther away, and which this new Israeli government, which voices such detestable bigotry and hatred, clearly has no interest in pursuing. That was Netanyahu's Israel is Losing Me by Nicholas Goldberg from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. All right, we have two more Israel stories here from the Los Angeles Times, uh, Friday, February 24th, 2023. This first one is Gaza Rockets and Israeli Airstrikes Follow Deadly West Bank Gun Battle by Tia Goldenberg, Tel Aviv. Palestinian militants in the Gaza Strip launched rockets at uh, at southern Israel, an Israeli aircraft struck targets in the coastal enclave early Thursday after a deadly gun battle with Israeli troops during a raid in the occupied West Bank that killed 10 Palestinians. The bloodshed extends one of the deadliest periods in years between Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank, where dozens of Palestinians have been killed by Israeli fire since the start of the year. Palestinian attacks on Israelis in 2023 have killed 11 people. The Israeli military said Palestinian militants fired six rockets from the Gaza Strip toward the country's southern early south early Thursday. The Israeli, <laughs> Israeli military said air defenses intercepted five of the rockets, which were fired toward the cities of Ashkelon and Sidorot. One missile landed in an open field. Israeli aircraft then struck several targets in northern and central Gaza, including a weapons manufacturing site and a military compound belonging to the Hamas militant group, which rules Gaza. There were no reports of injuries in uh, Israel or Gaza. The violence comes in the first weeks of Israel's new far-right government, which has promised to take a tough line against the Palestinians and pledged to ramp up construction of Jewish settlements on lands that Palestinians seek for their future state. Israeli security forces have stepped up our arrest raids in the West Bank since a series of deadly Palestinian attacks last spring, operations that Israel says are meant to dismantle militant networks and thwart future assaults but they have shown few signs of sl slowing the violence and Wednesday's raid in the West Bank town of Nab Nabius resulted in one of the bloodiest battles in nearly a year in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, raising the likelihood of further bloodshed. We have a clear policy to strike terror powerfully and to deepen our roots in our land, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told the meeting of his cabinet. We will settle accounts with whoever harms Israeli citizens. Israeli police uh, increased security in sensitive areas. The ruling Hamas group in Gaza said its patience was running out, while Islamic Jihad, another militant group, vowed to retaliate. 
a day after a raid in January on the Janine refugee camp that killed West in the West Bank that killed 10 Palestinians. A Palestinian shot and killed several people outside a synagogue in East Jerusalem. On Thursday, police said security guards at the, at the entrance to a Jewish settlement in the West Bank shot and lightly wounded a woman who's, who police said attempted to stab the guards. Among the 10 killed Wednesday in the Nablus, in the Nablus were, were uh, Palestinian men ages 72 and 61 and a 16-year-old boy, according to health officials. Scores of others were wounded. Uh, various, Palestinian, uh, various, Palestinians, various Palestinian militant groups claimed six of the dead are, as members. There was no immediate word on whether the others belonged to armed groups. Officials said a 66-year-old man died from tear gas inhalation. In response to the raid, a strike was called across the West Bank and schools, universities, and shops shut down in protest. Schools and universities were closed in Gaza. Most shops in East Jerusalem were also shut. The Israeli military said it entered Nablus, the West Bank's commercial center and a city known as a militant stronghold to arrest three militants suspected in previous shooting attacks. The main suspect was wanted in the killing of an Israeli soldier last fall. Wednesday's four-hour operation left a broad swath of damage in a centuries-old marketplace in Nablus. Shops were riddled with bullet holes, parked cars were crushed, and blood stained the cement. Furniture from a destroyed home was scattered among the mounds of debris. The influx of wounded overwhelmed the city's uh, Naha Hospital, said Ahmad Aswad, the head nurse of the cardiology department. In one emotional scene, an overwhelmed medic pronounced a man dead, only to notice the lifeless patient was his father. Elsewhere, an amateur video showed two men, apparently unarmed, being shot as they ran in the street. Israeli military spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht said the armed forces were looking into it. As the bodies were paraded through the, uh, through the crowd on stretchers, thousands of people packed the streets, chanting in support of the militants. Masked men fired into the air. The fighting comes at a sensitive time, less than two months after Netanyahu's new hardline government took office. It presents an early challenge for Netanyahu, who, on top of spiraling violence, is also facing waves of pro-democracy protests by Israelis against a plan to overhaul this, the country's justice system. The government is dominated by ultra-nationalists who have pushed for tougher action against Palestinian militants and vowed to entrench Israeli rule in the West Bank. Israeli media have quoted top security officials as expressing concern that this could lead to even more violence as the Muslim holy month of Ramadan approaches. About 60 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank and East Jerusalem this year, according to a tally by the Associated Press. Last year, nearly 150 Palestinians were killed in those areas, making it the deadliest year since 2004, according to figures by the Israeli rights group Betislim. Uh, some 30 people on the Israeli side were killed in Palestinian attacks. That was Gaza rockets and Israeli airstrikes followed deadly West Bank gun battle by Tia Goldberg. And this other one is called Oman will let Israeli planes use airspace. Called a historic step by the U.S., the move follows a similar one by Saudi Arabia from the Associated Press. Tel Aviv. 
Israel's former foreign minister said Thursday that the Gulf Arab state of Oman has decided to allow Israeli planes to fly through its airspace. The announcement was another sign of closer ties between Israel and some Arab countries. Oman Civil Aviation Authority tweeted that it affirms that the Sultanate's airspace is open for all carriers that meet the requirements for, of the authority for overflying, without directly mentioning Israel. The move comes on, a, on the heels last year of a similar step by Saudi Arabia and would shorten flying distance, shorten the flying distance between Israel and Asia. This is a significant and historic decision for the Israeli economy and Israeli travelers, said Foreign Minister Eli Cohen, who said there has been American involvement in the decision. In Washington, Adrian Watson, the national security spokesperson, welcomed Oman's decision, calling it a historic step that completes the process, uh, a process begun last year during President Biden's visit to the region when Saudi Arabia sim similarly opened its airspace to all civilian planes. The United States was pleased to support these efforts uh, through months of, of quiet diplomatic engagement. Oman and Israel have had secretive ties for years, which was spotlighted in 2018 when Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made a surprise visit to the country, the first trip of its kind in over 20 years. Still, Oman was not among the four countries to sign normalization deals with Israel in 2020 under the U.S. brokered agreements known as the Abraham Accords. The United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, as well as Morocco and Sudan, all agreed to normalize ties with Israel as part of the deal. The deals. The Sultanate has long had a low-key role in fostering negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Oman, which sits on the southeastern tip of Arab the Arabian Peninsula, with Saudi Arabia to its north and Iran to its east, has also had a long record of being a quiet broker in the region, opting to stay on the sidelines of their rivalry between the two regional powerhouses. Oman has also served as a mediator between the United States and Israel's arch-rival Iran. Oman hosted the secret talks that eventually led to the 2015 Iran nuclear agreement and has facilitated the release of prisoners and hostages held by armed groups. Earlier this week, Oman welcomed Syrian President Bashar Assad on his first visit outside Syria since the earthquake there earlier this month. That was Oman will let Israeli planes use airspace from the Associated Press, and those were both from the Los Angeles Times, February 24th, tw Friday, February 24th, 2023. Okay, we move on to this one from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, February 19, 2023. Lincoln warns Chinese diplomat. He meets with Beijing counterpart for the first time since he was shot down balloon by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken met Saturday with his Chinese counterpart, the first high-level contact between the, wor two, the world's two largest economies since President Biden opened a tentative rapprochement with Beijing last year. The meeting comes amid mutual sustained recriminations over recent incidents of alleged aerial espionage. Blinken sat down to talk with Wang Yi, director of the Chinese Office of Foreign Affairs, on the margins of a global security conference taking place in Munich, the State Department said in a statement. 
The meeting was much anticipated because of long-standing tensions between the two countries. Inflamed this month, when the U.S. shot down what alleges was a Chinese spy balloon over American territory. That incident prompted Blinken to cancel a more formal meeting scheduled with Wang in Beijing on February 5th. Blinken raised the issue of the spy balloon in his unannounced meeting with Wang on Saturday, spokesman Ned Price said in, the, in a State Department news release. Washington maintains that the enormous balloon was conducting surveillance possibly over sensitive military installations from an altitude of about 60,000 feet in violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law. Price said Blinken told Wang that this irresponsible act must never again occur. China's high-altitude surveillance balloon program, which has intruded into the airspace of over 40 countries across five continents, has been exposed to the world, Price added. It was not clear how much progress Blinken made in pushing the U.S. viewpoint, however. Hours before their meeting, Wang reiterated criticisms over what Beijing characterizes as an American overreaction, calling it hysterical and absurd. There are so many balloons all over the world, so is the United States going to shoot them all down, Wang said, uh, according to Reuters. The actions don't show that the U.S. is big and strong, but the exact opposite, he said. China's maintained that the craft brought down by a single sidewinder missile fired by a U.S. combat jet was a weather research balloon that accidentally strayed into U.S. airspace. U.S. officials hoped the contact Saturday would be part of a process uh, in which the Biden administration highlights disagreements with Beijing without barreling into all-out conflict. The United States will complete and will unapologetically stand up for our values and interests, Blinken told Wang, according to Price. But we do not want conflict with the People's Republic of China and are not looking for a new Cold War. The secretary underscored the importance of maintaining diplomatic dialogue and open lines of communication at all times, Price said. In an interview to be aired Sunday morning on NBC News' Meet the Press with Chuck Todd, the Secretary of State said Wang did not apologize for the balloon incident. Blinken added that there was no doubt the balloon with a payload uh, said to uh, measure the length of three buses was attempting to engage in surveillance. Pentagon said Friday that all remnants of the vessel which was shot down off South Carolina on February 4 have been removed and are being examined by the FBI and intelligence officials. The Secretary of State also reiterated support for Taiwan and the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, Price said. In a move that Beijing may see as provocative, a U.S. congressional delegation led by California's Representative Ro Khanna, Democrat of Fremont, was to arrive in Taiwan this weekend. In his meeting with Wang, Blinken also raised China's possible support for Russia in its war against Ukraine, which is about to enter its second year. Uh, China President, Chinese President Xi Jinping has voiced solidarity with Moscow, but Price said there will be consequences if China provides Russia with equipment, material support, or ways to evade international sanctions. Separately, at the Munich conference on Saturday, Vice President Kamala Harris also warned China against supporting Russian aggression in Ukraine and what she outlined as massive war crimes. We are troubled that Beijing has deepened its relationship with Moscow since the war began, she said. 
That was Blinkin' Words, Chinese Diplomat by Tracy Wilkinson from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 19, 2023. All right, and now back home, we have this one from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 24, 2023. Weinstein gets 16 years in prison for 2013 rape in L.A. by James Queeley. Harvey Weinstein, who was sentenced, was sentenced to 16 years in prison on Thursday for raping a woman in a Beverly Hills hotel in 2013, all but ensuring that the disgraced Hollywood kingmaker will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Weinstein, who was 70 and in poor health, is already serving a 23-year prison sentence in New York, where he was convicted in 2020 of sexually assaulting other women. In handing down the uh, in handing down Weinstein's punishment, Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Lisa Lynch ruled he cannot serve the two sentences concurrently. Instead, Weinstein will return to New York to serve out the rest of his sentence there, according to his attorney, Mark Worksman. Uh, combined, the sentence ensured Weinstein will not be eligible for release until at least the 2050s. Following a nearly two-month trial, Weinstein was convicted last month of raping an Italian model and actor after he barged into her hotel room. The jury deliberated for 10 days before convicting him of forcible rape, forcible oral copulation, and sexual penetration with a foreign object in connection with the assault of the woman who was not named during the trial. The woman, identified as Jane Doe 1, trembled and cried while speaking in, the, in court Thursday and asked Lynch to hand out the most severe punishment possible. Weinstein's behavior, she said, robbed her of control of her life and has left her to endure flashbacks of the assault to this day. There's no prison sentence long enough to erase the damage. He deserves to experience the same shame, humiliation, and fear as I did, she said. Weinstein faced a maximum sentence of 24 years in prison. Prosecutors asked Lynch to hand down the maximum sentence. Worksman asked that Lynch sentence Weinstein to just three years in prison to be served concurrent with his New York sentence because of all the counts re related to one sexual act that happened in a frenzied 15-minute span. He also requested leniency because of Weinstein's myriad health issues, including spinal, uh, spinal stenosis and diabetes. Lynch, however, ruled that each count was a distinct crime and sentenced him to eight, six, and two years in prison for each count, respectively. Weinstein spoke for the first time since his trial began in October, maintaining his innocence and asked Lynch not to hand down what was effectively a life sentence. I did not rape this woman. I did not see this woman. I wasn't at the hotel, Weinstein said. He claimed his accuser as a former actor, knew how to turn the tears on, uh, and, the, and said the woman's allegation was a result of a cottage industry of lawyers who have made careers out of, su of suing him. Jane Doe 1 filed a civil suit against Weinstein shortly after he was convicted. Weinstein initially faced more than 11 counts of sexual assault stemming from allegations he raped and groped multiple women in hotel rooms in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills from 2004 to 2013. Jurors deadlocked on charges based on his alleged attacks on three other women, including Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who was married to Governor Gavin Newsom, and prosecutors dropped counts related to allegations made by a fourth woman who did not appear in court to testify. Siebel Newsom released a video statement after, after the hearing. 
In it, she recounted other incidents of abuse she said she had suffered and the trauma of losing her sister as a young child, but said what Harvey Weinstein did to me was the worst. His assault was excruciatingly traumatic, and for years he walked away unfettered while I spent years nursing my wounds. District Attorney George Gascon's office has not said whether it will seek to retry Weinstein on the counts for which the jury could not reach a verdict. The mogul has denied all wrongdoing and is appealing his New York conviction, though an early attempt to do so failed. While he spoke at a sentencing hearing in New York, Weinstein did not testify on his own defense at either trial. Thursday's hearing was another and possibly final turn in Weinstein's complete fall from Hollywood's highest echelon. The one-time film producer, who was the force behind beloved films such as The English Patient and Goodwill Hunting, is now a pariah in the industry he once ruled. Weinstein's career unraveled in 2017 after investigations by the New York Times and The New Yorker revealed that he had used his status in the industry to get access to actors and models, many of whom he said, said he abused and in some cases raped. In all, dozens of women have accused Weinstein of sexual misconduct. Prosecutors focused on that dynamic throughout the trial, painting Weinstein as a predator who used Hollywood as his hunting ground and specifically targeted women who he could use his influence to silence. For this predator, hotels were his trap. Confined with those walls, victims were not able to run from his hulking mess. People were not able to hear their scream. LA, Deputy, LA County Deputy District Attorney Marlene Martinez said it during her closing arguments last month. Weinstein's defense team aggressively attacked each woman's credibility, arguing that some of the accusers had fabricated their encounters with Weinstein and that others had engaged in consensual sexual relationships with him in exchange for job opportunities. Defense attorney Alan Jackson pleaded with jurors to focus on what he said were inconsistencies in the women's claims as opposed to emotional testimonies. I don't know how to say, the, say it more gently than this, but fury does not make fact, he said. Tears do not make truth. That was Weinstein gets 16 years in prison for 2013 rape in L.A. by James Queeley from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 24th, 2023. All right, and here in the city, we have a couple of things of uh, special interest ones here from the California section, the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Local leaders decry attacks on Jews. L.A. Mayor, Police Chief, and Sheriff aim to reassure residents after shootings by Deborah Michael Finnegan and Deborah Netburn. In a school gymnasium painted yellow and black to symbolize the star of Jewish people were forced to wear in Nazi Germany, Mayor Karen Bass addressed a crowd of 400 who had gathered for a town hall on anti-Semitic violence after the shootings of two Jewish men last week in Los Angeles. Our Jewish community was terrorized, and that terror was felt across Los Angeles, Bass said. I have heard people say that they were afraid to walk in the neighborhoods to worship this past Sabbath. I've also heard people, including one of the victims, say that nothing would keep them away from services. The fact is, no one should have to face that kind of choice. The shootings occurred Wednesday and Thursday morning as the men were leaving prayer services. Both survived their wounds, and a suspect, Jaime Tran, who had, has a history of making anti-Semitic statements, was taken into custody Thursday. 
Tran, 28, was charged the following day with federal hate crimes. If convicted, he faces life without parole in federal prison, prosecutors said. Bass said she was determined to hire more LAPD officers and would consider new law enforcement programs that employ cameras and license plate readers. Today, we're not just uh, here to stand uh, in solidarity against last week's shooting, she said. We are here locked arms against all forms of hatred, bigotry, and discrimination because anti-Semitism goes against the boundaries of our city and goes against our humanity. The town hall at YULA Boys High School, a modern Orthodox yeshiva in Beverly Hills, was organized by the Jewish Federation of Los Angeles. In addition to Bass, who received a standing ovation, speakers included LAPD Chief Michael Moore, LA County Sheriff Robert Luna, and Donald Alway, who leads the FBI's LA field office. Rabbi Noah Farkas, chief executive of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, reminded the crowd that Tran told police he was scouting in kosher supermarkets for people to shoot. Thank God neither of the victims died, but what's clear is that he was hunting Jews, he said. The fear we feel is real, the horror we are experiencing is real. Farkas mentioned other violent incidents across the nation, including the 2019 shooting at a synagogue in the San Diego suburb of Poway and the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. We have been assaulted, we have been beaten, we have been kidnapped, we have been held hostage, and now we have been shot, Farkas said. All around the world, the world's oldest hate is once again threatening the safety and security and well-being of Jews. It's being stoked by extremist groups, social media, political leaders, and celebrities. Moore lamented the spread of hate speech on social media and pledged police support to prevent violence motivated by bigotry. The LAPD chief urged the public to turn over to authorities the names of anyone who seems to be threatening such violence. We want to understand who the individual is, he said. He reminded the crowd that California has strong gun laws and that restraining orders can be used to take weapons away from anyone dangerous. We'll ensure they don't have guns, he said. Luna raised the possibility of anti-hate instruction for detainees in the county's jail. He also promised aggressive enforcement of hate crimes. We have to hold people accountable for words because words matter, the sheriff said. Tran, the alleged shooter, had a disturbing history of anti-Semitic threats according to a criminal complaint. Years after his 2018 expulsion from dental school, he emailed dozens of former classmates that Jewish people are primitive and repeatedly texted another former classmate who threatened with threatening messages such as, I want you dead, Jew. Ivan Wolkin, chief operating and financial officer of the Jewish Federation of Los Angeles, said it is the normalization of hate language and imagery when it comes to the Jewish community that has him most concerned. I think it's growing apace, and I think that the more people see it from everyone from their friend at school uh, to national figures using these tropes and these anti-Semitic language and images just becomes more and more accepted, he said in an interview. If anybody is disenfranchised, if someone is looking for a group to blame rather than taking responsibility for themselves, it becomes easier and easier to choose the Jewish community as that target. Evidence suggests that anti-Semitism is growing in L.A. and beyond. 
LAPD statistics show that a 24% increase in anti-Jewish hate crimes last year compared with 2021. There were 89 victims in 2022 and 72 in 2021, according to the department. Meanwhile, the LAPD's hate crimes unit reported 643 crimes in total in 2022, a 13% increase over 2021's 567 and a more and more than double in the 20 the 257 recorded 5 years ago. Nationally, the Anti-Defamation League has reported a similar trend. According to the organization's annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents, there were 2,717 throughout the United States in 2021, a 34% increase from 2020, and the most since the organization began its tally in 1979. In October, after rapper Kanye West posted anti-Semitic rhetoric on social media, demonstrators hung a sign above the 405 freeway that said Kanye is right about the Jews while giving the Nazi salutes. This followed neighborhoods of LA in LA finding anti-Semitic flyers on doorsteps and windshields. Bass says she believes all these incidents were connected. I actually look at it like it's been an escalation that started with flyers, flyers over the weekend, banners across the freeway, and now a shooting, she said. And that's why it is so important that we get aggressively and immediately act aggressively and immediately at the first sign of anything. There was local leaders to cry attacks on Jews by Michael Finnegan and Deborah Netburn from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. All right, here's a follow-up story from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, February 18, 2023. L.A. Jews always worried. The suspect arrested in connection with two shootings this week has a history of making anti-Semitic statements, prosecutors say by Noah Goldberg, Sonia Sharp, Terry Castleman, and Richard Winton. Stephanie Sultan, who owns a kosher restaurant on Pico Boulevard, knew his, na- st- uh, knew his neighbors and customers were on edge because they kept con- uh, confiding the same message. They were carrying guns. Sultan said they were arming themselves after the shooting Wednesday of a man leaving a synagogue in Pico Robertson. We have to protect ourselves, Sultan said. On Thursday morning, he was standing outside his restaurant, Trattoria Natale, when he heard three pops. After watching police en route to the scene a few blocks away, he learned that another Jewish man had been shot leaving after leaving worship services. Of course they were scared yesterday, said Sultan, who was Jewish and emigrated from France. Everybody at the restaurant and at the market was talking about it. Although both men were shot, who were shot survived their wounds, the violence has left the Jewish community on edge. The arrest Thursday evening of a suspect confirmed fears that the uh, attacks were targeted. Jaime Tran, or Jamie Tran, who authorities say has a history of making anti-Semitic statements, often specifically about Persian Jews, was taken into custody in connection with the shootings. Tran, 28, was charged Friday with federal hate crimes. He admitted to police that he searched for a kosher market on Yelp before the shooting, according to a complaint unsealed in federal court in Los Angeles. If convicted, he faces life without parole in federal prison, prosecutors say. The first shooting occurred around 9.45 a.m. Wednesday near Shenandoah and Casio Streets. A man in his 40s was shot in the back while walking to his vehicle, authorities said. The second attack came around 8 a.m. Thursday near Pickford and South Bedford Streets. 
about a block away. A man was shot in the arm while walking home. Both shootings were at close range according to the federal charges. Both men were shot and had who were shot just had just left religious services and were wearing black jackets and kippah head coverings that visibly identified their Jewish faith, according to the complaint. Witnesses and the victims told police they saw the shooter driving a gray Honda Civic. A Los Angeles Police Department officer who responded to the scene of Thursday's shooting saw an Asian man driving a Honda Civic, according to the complaint. She took a photo of the car, reviewed surveillance footage from the shootings, and determined that the car and the driver were the same person once she saw in well, the same ones she saw in person. Court documents show. Police tracked the car's license plate and determined that Tran was the registered owner. Officers on Thursday used his cell phone location to track him to Palm Springs. He was arrested by local police in adjacent Cathedral City after a report of a man firing a gun nearing near a Honda Civic, according to the complaint. When uh, interviewed by the police, Tran admitted that he had decided to shoot someone near the kosher market he had looked up on Yelp and knew his victims were Jewish because of their headgear, the complaint alleges. He asked police whether the victims were dead, according to federal prosecutors. Tran told police he had been living in his car for more than a year and had obtained the guns in Arizona. Tran was expelled from dental school in 2018 and in 2022 sent anti-Semitic messages to a former classmates, the complaint shows. A federal law enforcement source said Tran had attended UCLA Dental School. Tran was caught on July 3rd carrying a loaded handgun onto the Cal State Long Beach campus, according to the Los Angeles County uh, District Attorney's Office. Police got a call about a man with a gun near the engineering school and approached him. Tran surrendered and told officers he was carrying the weapon for protection, according to prosecutors. That case for which he was out on, on bail remains open. At his initial court appearance Friday, a federal judge ordered him held without bail in connection with the Pico Robertson shooting. Over the past two days, our community experienced two horrific acts we believe were motivated by anti-Semitic ideology that caused him to target the Jewish community, U.S. Attorney Martin Estrada said in announcing the charges against Tran. It is important, especially in one of the most diverse areas in the world, that we celebrate our differences and stand together to oppose acts of hate. Despite the shootings, the bustling through, uh, through thoroughfare of Pico Boulevard was crowded Friday, with shoppers stocking up ahead of the Sabbath and worshippers going to and from morning prayers. The streets had dozens of synagogues, religions, religious schools, and kosher restaurants and supermarkets. Orthodox families filled the area's ding, uh, dingbat apartments, duplexes, and bungalows, and thousands jammed the sidewalk Saturday mornings on their way to Torah services. Los Angeles County is home to the largest Iranian Jewish diaspora outside of Israel, many of whom live in Pico Robertson or go there to shop or worship. Just steps from where the, uh, the second victim was shot are a kosher kebab restaurant, a Persian synagogue, and a kosher supermarket with aisles of Iranian specialty items such as a Nani, Nani Kodikai cookies, Sadiq tea, and saffron rock sugar. But the community's visibility has left many fearing that they could become targets again. 
I don't go to synagogue. I didn't go to synagogue yesterday because I didn't know what might happen," said Jonathan Hasid, 23, who attends Adas Torah on Pico Boulevard. A lot of people are questioning whether to go to shul for Shabbos. Others said they hoped their children or elderly parents would stay home. I'm always worried. Every night, I'm, wa I'm waiting for my son to come home," and said Shira Arv Shahi. 46, as she loaded groceries into her car outside Elot Market, a kosher store in the heart of the neighborhood. My 17-year-old daughter is working at the synagogue, babysitting. I'm afraid, but I don't want, but I want to make them worry. Police cars, Magan armed security guards, and LAPD officers on horseback patrolled the neighborhood Friday morning. A show of force far beyond even the foot uh, the stepped-up patrols that followed anti-Semitic mass shootings, such as at the Tree of Life massacre in 2018 in Pittsburgh. I've seen more police just walking from our home today than in the last 30 years combined, said Amy Roth. There was a slight spirit of defiance in the air. I am not afraid. I do, I do three years army, said Sultan, the restaurant owner. It's always concerning when there is anti-Semitic violence, but we have faith that God is going to protect us, said Jethro Da Silva, 55, as he left Ohai Moshe, a Persian synagogue. Oh, hell, Moshe. Though he worries for his eight-year-old daughter, said Joseph Haber, I kiss my mezuzah. I practice, I practice many Jews have upon entering or leaving a building and go home. As a minority, we come here with pride to live with pride, said Haber, 55. For someone to come and take that pride away, it's unjustifiable. Others met the news of the shootings with wary cynicism. I honestly thought it would happen sooner. It said, Devorah Esakhan, 28. I'm not going to change anything. We can't show we're scared. Councilmember Katie Young Yaroslavsky, whose district includes Pico Robertson, noted Thursday that the shootings coincided with a rise in anti-Semitic attacks in recent months. LAPD statistics for 2022 show a 24% increase in anti-Jewish hate crimes compared with 2021. There were 89 victims in 2022 and 72 in 2021, statistics show. Ariella Lowenstein, Deputy Regional Directory, Director of the Anti-Defamation League, said the group's annual anti-Semitic incident audit shows that 2021 saw the greatest increase ever. In California, from 2020 to 21, there was an increase in incidents of 27%. In the region that covers LA, Kern, San Bernardino, and Riverside counties, the group has found a 40% increase in the last five years. In a statement Monday, L.A. Mayor Karen Bass said the community could rest a little easier with an arrest in the case. Still, she said, anti-Semitism and terror are tragically on the rise across our city and across our nation. My administration is resolute against hate, and we have made it a chief component of our public safety agenda. Despite the arrest and assurances, residents say they may never feel completely at ease. Ultimately, there is always a danger toward the Jewish community, said Zev Amster, 47, adding that he doesn't plan to let his children walk alone this weekend. That was L.A. Jews Always Worried by Noah Goldberg, Sonia Sharp, Terry Castleman, and Richard Winton from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, February 18, 2023. Time stuff writer Brittany Mejia contributed to this report. 
All right, let's turn to a little entertainment news here. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, a movie review. She shines in Radiant Girl. Rebecca Martyr is effervescent in a coming-of-age story set in wartime Paris by Michael Rechaffin. Working behind the camera for the first time, French actress Sandrine Kiberlane filters familiar subject matter through a unique lens, resulting in the simultaneously ominous and vibrant allegorical coming-of-age story that is a radiant girl. A thoughtfully composed portrait of a youthful, of youthful idealism under the lengthening shadow of Nazi-occupied France, the film is in no rush to establish the usual period context. Titles revealing place and time, newspapers, headlines, radio broadcasts that tend to go with the territory. Instead, when we meet aspiring actress Irene, a delightfully effervescent Rebecca Martyr, rehearsing a scene with fellow theater students, the era in question is deliberately undefined. It isn't until Irene returns to the comfortable Paris apartment, apartment she shares with her by-the-book father, André Marcon, free-spirited grandmother, Francois Wildhoff, and older brother, Anthony Bahon, that the writer-director proceeds to dispense the economically measured exposition. We gradually learn that Irene is given to fainting spells, her family is Jewish, and that, that is the summer of 1942, and that her obedient dad tries to convince himself that they need not meet the same fate as their Polish brethren. We're French, reasons Marcon's André. It's different. We just need to follow the rules. For her part, Irene is laser-focused on more pressuring matters, like nailing the audition that will get her into the renowned conservatoire and her complicated love life. Just when she grapples with the best way to extricate herself uh, from the smothering attentiveness of Gilbert Jean Chevalier, she becomes smitten with Jacques Cyril Metzger, her doctor's handsome assistant, deliberately falling, failing her eye exam in order to book a return appointment for a pair of glasses. Calling upon the diary of Anne Frank, and the journal of Helene Bear, as well as recollections shared by her own family to process the events of the period through the eyes of a young woman, Kimberlane infuses Irene's story with a more contemporary immediacy, assisted by cinematographer Guillaume Schiffman's energetic camera work. While the costume design shares a similar timelessness, Irene's clothing choices could easily be taken from the, for the vintage chic of a Modern-day theater student, the wide-ranging musical sections, including Tom, uh, Tom Waits' All the World is Green, prove more problematic. When Irene and her grandmother dance to Part-Time Love, a recent song by British-Nigerian soul singer Jacob Banks, the blatantly anachronistic result can't help but pull the viewer out of the tender moment. But there are no false moves in Marta's truly radiant lead performance. An irrepressible bundle of youthful exuberance, Irene's pro uh, propulsive consult, uh, cons consult motion may be in keeping with that of an average 19-year-old, but there is a palpable urgency lurking just beneath that self-possessed surface. She might at first appear to be more preoccupied with her own daily drama than what is going on in the world outside her front door, but she proves to be far from oblivious. It's no wonder her Irene finds comfort in looking at things through the strong prescription lenses of her unnecessary eyeglasses, 
they help blur the all-too-vivid reality of what lies jarringly just beyond her reach. That was She Shines in Radiant Girl by Michael Rechtschaffen from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. It's called A Radiant Girl in French with English subtitles not rated, running time 1 hour 33 minutes, playing at the Lamely Monica in Santa Monica. Alright, so now we're going to start reading some articles from a new publication that uh, that uh, came my way called Bayahad, which is a publication of the Jewish National Fund. And uh, this is from uh, for the dates of... It is actually for, for winter of 2023. So let's start off with uh, this, a message from our president. Bringing History to Life, a Noble Endeavor for Our Jewish Future, by Dr. Saul Lizerbrom. At Jewish National Fund USA, we believe in an even brighter future for the land and people of Israel and Jewish people everywhere. We believe in pushing boundaries, we believe in Zionism, and we are doing things that have never been done before. With that in mind, you might wonder we, why, have we, why we have an issue that's all about the past. Eli Wiesel once said, Others have been here before me, and I walk in their footsteps. The books I have read were composed by generations of fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, teachers and disciples. I am the sum total of their experiences, their quests, and so are you. And so are our, cho- and so are our children, their children, and beyond. Why do we work so passionately to bring history to life, to tell the stories of our parents and grandparents? Why are we commanded to remember the Exodus? It is a central and profound Jewish truth that learning about the past, relating it to our own lives, and carrying it forward is not just our responsibility, it's our privilege. In this issue, you'll learn about Jewish National Fund USA's efforts to bring history to life, whether it's for a group of Israeli or American schoolchildren exploring the founding of our nation and our rich ancient history, a platoon of IDF soldiers discovering their sacrifice, the sacrifices made and friendships forged to build the land of Israel, or just me and you uncovering our deep connections to our land and people. We have an incredible opportunity through historical and heritage sites to bring lasting connections to Israel and to our ancestral soil. As you read about how we're bringing history to life and celebrating our heritage, I challenge you to think about how you're doing the same in your home, whether it's sharing stories about your grandparents at the Passover Seder, reposting and engaging with social media content highlighting our Zionist pride, or standing up to those who would rewrite our history. You can be a part of this work too. We're about to celebrate 75 years of the miracle of the modern state of Israel and its people. While 75 might be a blip in the span of our Jewish history, it is a remarkable and historic moment. We invite you to join us in Israel to see these sites for yourself and to write your own story of connection. Jewish National Fund USA knows Israel by heart. I urge you to celebrate this moment in our people's history and recognize all those who made sacrifices to ensure our future. Jewish National Fund USA will continue to dedicate ourselves to the preservation and passing forward of our incredible Jewish story as we look forward with vision and hope. We wouldn't do it without you. I would love for you to come home to Israel with us, 
Learn more, learn more about our Israel at 75 mission at jnup.org slash Israel 75. You can always reach me at president at jnf.org. That's a message from our president bringing history to life, a noble endeavor for our Jewish future by Dr. Sol Lizerbaum. All right, we have this one, Campaign All-Star, Keeping History Alive by Michael Kessler by Cami Fusey. Writer Isaac Bashevis Singer said, Heaven and earth conspire that everything which has been be rooted and reduced to dust. Only the dreamers who dream uh, will, will, while awake, uh, call back the shadows of the past and braid nets from the unspun thread. Michael Kessler of Long Island weaves together the fabric of history and the present through education and philanthropy. Kessler serves as the National Vice President of the Israel Education Continuum, which provides Jewish and Zionist education from birth to the boardroom. In this role, Kessler plants and nurtures the seeds of young Jewish leadership. It, I feel it's my duty, he explained, to educate people on the great work that Jewish National Fund USA does. Teaching our kids about a strong, positive Israel helps them combat the anti-Semitism we are now seeing around the world, Kessler no noted regretfully. I think a lot of kids, even if they have strong Jewish upbringings, don't know how to deal with it. Kessler wor Kessler's work also includes his interest in history. I had always heard about this bullet factory, and unfortunately, in all my trips in Israel, it had never been on the agenda. During the 1948 War of Independence, workers labored covertly around the clock in a secret underground bullet factory at a kibbutz near Rehovot to produce ammunition for Jewish soldiers, running a laundry facility on the floor above uh, on the floor above to mask the sounds of their work. It really was under the threat of death, Kessler explained. The workers held live ammunition <coughs> and could have been imprisoned or killed by the British if discovered. When he finally went to the Ayalon Institute, the museum of the original bullet factory, Kessler visited with a critical eye. He saw that the powerful story was dimmed by the outdated facility. I thought it could be so much more, a showcase of that period and time, he said. Hoping to modernize, he and his family funded the construction of the Kessler Jewish National Fund USA Entrance Hall. Said Kessler at the Cornerstone Lane ceremony, it's about preserving the special, secret place for all generations and to entice them to learn about one of the foundations of the country and how Israel's Israeli ingenuity lay the groundwork for the state of Israel. Of the museum's visitors, Kessler said, I want them to know that some ordinary guy on Long Island could make a difference in Israel. I want them to say, who are the Kesslers and who is this survivor that they honored Meyer Ashurovitz? Ashurovitz, Kessler's father-in-law, is a Holocaust survivor who fought in the 1948 conflict and was captured and held as a prisoner of war. It was not lost on Kessler that the bullets produced in the factory may have been their way to his father-in-law's gun. In his work in education and philanthropy, Kessler values the importance of history. You're always learning from the past. Seeing the resiliency of the people that came before us, he said, kind of makes our problems look small. It was Campaign All-Star Keeping History Alive, Michael Kessler by Kami Fusi. All right, here's this one called Campus Leaders Speak Out, 
four students share their experiences of being Zionists on campus. Author unknown. Emily Austin, Hofstra University. To see so many come to listen to our stories was truly touching. The morning of our panel, I was second-guessing if my work was worth it. The social media scrutiny, the hateful messages, the misinformation about being spread about me, for a moment it all became overwhelming. After speaking, the number of students who told me they walked away with a new perspective reminded me why I do what I do. They reminded me that our community is one worth fighting for. I've always been proud to be Jewish, but now it's crucial to be vocal too. It's so important to be proud of your identity because at the end of the day, that's all you have. No one can ever take that away from you. And if it's being threatened, just don't give in. You are not alone. You're a part of a community where there is always someone to offer support in a time of need. Kiran Campbell, Morehouse College. I firmly believe everyone is entitled to a life to live a life free of hatred. I agreed to be on this panel because of the because the rise of anti-Semitism and racism, two of the world's oldest evils, is severe. You do not you do not have to be Jewish to believe anti-Semitism is wrong. I am a proud Zionist and black man who believes the Jewish people have a right to self-determination. I'm, I'm the only proud Zionist on my campus, and that can be a challenge because of the growing gap between the black and Jewish communities. Yet our history, shared history gives me the determination to continue to fight for my friends uh, within the Jewish community. In my four years of activism, I have learned much about this diverse and vibrant community. I hope one day we can live in a world where there is peace and love for all people. Jacob Hotstein, Duke University. It's important for students to take active roles in fighting against anti-Semitism and for Zionism on college campuses despite fear. If we don't stand up and stand together now, we are missing out on a great opportunity to inform and inspire others. People may fear getting canceled, but if a group or employer cancels you for standing up for Israel, it's unlikely that it is something you want to be a part of anyway. Don't wait to stand up for Israel until you graduate, because on college campuses you are surrounded by the leaders of the next generation, and this is your time to engage with them. Don't run from the challenge and don't be afraid. College campuses may seem like a challenging place for Zionists today, but seeing all the amazing things that my peers are doing reinvigorated me to keep up the fight and not back down. Tamara Listenberg, American University. For months, I felt alone on campus because of my pride in Israel. After forming a chapter of students supporting Israel on my campus and attending Jewish National Fund USA's National Conference, I realized that I am not alone. I now feel constant support from my growing SSI chapter from organizations such as the Jewish National Fund USA, ICC, SSI and others, as well as from people around the world who care about the work that we do. I have now been welcomed into a family of people who dedicate their time to supporting Israel, and I couldn't be more confident in the importance of my work as a campus activist. Thank you, Jewish National Fund USA, for welcoming me into this world and putting us all together in one room. Today, today I can say that I'm a very proud and empowered Jewish-Israeli Zionist woman. That was Campus Leaders Speak Out, four students share their experiences of being Zionist on campus. Author unknown, to get involved, contact Eden Dembski at 
edemsky at jnf.org. Here's something from what they call the food and wine section. Tradition in a food truck. Shekolita's rising popularity honors its past by Tania Michaelian. Nestled against the backdrop of an authentic kibbutz with expansive lawns and gorgeous views of the Galili, you'll find a culinary gem serving great coffee and delicious local food. Secholita embodies that early pioneering spirit of the then-fledgling Jewish state from its unusual name right down to the delicious challah that it sells each Friday. What's with the name? In 1933, two separate Jewish youngsters, the, boy, the boys that came from Czechoslovakia and the girls from Lithuania, arrived in pre-state Israel with the dream of working the land. The group merged and called themselves Kibbutz Czecholita. In 1940, they moved there to their present location in the western Galilee and renamed themselves Kibbutz Mazarik. The name Chekolita honors this heritage. What makes Chekolita unique? The Chekolita food truck, which was donated by Ben and Susan Gutman of New Jersey, opened its doors at the height of the pandemic in April of 2021, when people were looking for safe outdoor locations to enjoy good food and coffee in the thick of nature. News of this new food truck soon spread, and it has now become a popular stop for anyone traveling north or visitors for the Kefar Mazurik Kibbutz experience. Shekolita is operated by six young kibbutz members who put their heart and soul into creating a true kibbutz experience with a modern twist. We love serving the visitors our coffee and wonderful pastry. We make sure that we always have a smile on our face and make the visitors feel relaxed even when there might be a long line, said one 17-year-old who spends her weekends working in the truck. What's on the menu? Chekolita's menu changes with the season, but you'll always find delicious sandwiches, healthy salads, sweet and savory pastries, interesting drinks, and truly excellent coffee. Fresh piping hot soup is available in the winter months. Uh, all ingredients are sourced locally and produced, and products are often purchased from small area businesses providing income opportunities for residents of the Galili. Breaking Bread On Fridays, Chekolita sells fresh challah as a nod to the tradition of Mayer, the original baker who made it in the historic bakery for members of the Kibbutz Mazarik. Today, the tra that tradition is continued in the Kibbutz kindergarten and school, with pupils using the same recipe and taking their loaves home to the Shabbat table. There was tradition in a food truck by Tania Michaelian from the Food and Wine section. Uh, this next one is called One Day in Be'er Shiva by Mara Fall. If you haven't been to Be'er Shiva lately, you are missing out on a true gem. And if you have been in the past, you'll be blown away by the city it is today. The gateway to the south, the jewel of the Negev, whatever you call Be'er Be'er Shiva, it is the fastest growing city in Israel home to a world-renowned university and the future site of the World Zionist Village. If you only have a day, here's how to eat, drink, and enjoy. 8 a.m. Wake up at the beautiful Negev Hotel by Domus in the heart of Be'er Shiva. Enjoy your breakfast buffet and your morning coffee on the hotel's patio and get ready for a busy day. 9.30 a.m. Visit the Be'er Shiva River Park a 1,300-acre jewel that was built by Jewish National Fund USA. This centrally located park 
has completely changed the city's landscape, literally. Bring a blanket and sit on the lush lawns by the seven miles of River Park or stroll along the promenades with your friends and family. Watch wedding photos being taken on the Pipes Bridge or lounge along the soothing waters of the 23-acre man-made lake. If you're lucky, there might be a concert happening at the park's Jewish National Fund USA Danielle A. Grossman and Irving J. Grossman Amphitheater. 11 a.m. Make sure you've booked your tour ahead of time and visit Abraham's Well. Here, you will learn about the story of the patriarch, the place, and the legacy of the site through a multimedia experience developed through a partnership between the city and Jewish National Fund USA. Leave a little time before or after to stroll around Be'er Shiva's old city and its recently restored architectural treasures. 12.30 p.m. It's lunchtime. The day is flying by. An absolutely zero-frills lunch at Hummus Said won't register on any luxury tour guides, but it will be some of the best hummus you have ever had. 2 p.m. No time to waste. There is so much to do. We're off to the Israel Air Force Museum at Hot Serim. Here, you can get up close and personal with some of the most magnificent aircraft from the historic to the modern in the world. Wear comfortable shoes and a hat. Most of the museum is outdoors. 4 p.m. All that walking requires some fuel. So stop by Cafe Bialik 26 at, you guessed it, 26 Haim Nachman Bialik Street. Get a cappuccino or an iced coffee and try one of their popular toasts, toasted cheese bread, for a snack. 5 p.m. Before the sun sets, be sure to visit the monument to the Negev Brigade, which sits on a hill overlooking the city. Designed by Dene Karavan, this is an artistic and historically significant piece that honors the fallen Negev Brigade in the War of Independence. 8 p.m. Ready for dinner? One of the most recognizable spots in Be'er Shiva is our destination with the Moroccan food at Yakuda on the menu for tonight. 10.30 p.m. Nothing like a nightcap clo to close out a great day. Grab a cocktail at the popular Zalame bar and toast to a day well spent. That was One Day in Be'er Shiva by Mara Fah. For more information, contact Ilana Store at Istore. I-S-T-O-E-H-R at JNF.org or call 212-879-9305 extension 255. Alright, now here's something from a section called Women for Israel. This is called 25 Extraordinary Years Celebrating the Sapphire Society, the Roots of Women for Israel. And author is unknown. In 1898, the World Zionist Congress included the right for women to vote. A visionary stepped forward uh, uh, long before most nations even considered women's suffrage. It has been a long and ongoing journey for women to stand up and take their place at the table. 25 years ago, 17 visionary women banded together to, the, to establish the Sapphire Society to take charge of their own philanthropic uh, giving and help steer Jewish National Fund USA forward in its quest to build a better future for the land and people of Israel. As the foundational base for today's Women for Israel societies, the Sapphire Society was a pioneer and decisive call that women are and will be heard as leaders in Jewish philanthropy. Their vision changed the course of, of women's giving and our organization. 
One of those founders, Terry Katz, reflecting on the past 25 years, shared just how profound that commitment was. We knew that we wanted to make a difference. We wanted to build a non-agricultural community. The group traveled to Israel and changed the future of an abandoned army outpost which, thanks to their hard work and dedication, has since become the flourishing artist village of Zuquim in the Arava and is now considered a foundational part of our blueprint Negev. For Toby Maurer, who was involved in the initial discussions along with several other women, the society became a much-needed way for women to become vocal in their organization. She recalls how women always played a decisive role in a family's charitable giving, and Sapphire Society created a formal opportunity for female philanthropists to make a major impact collectively. We just don't give. We listen to each other. We are invested in what we do. We examine what needs to be done, and we make things happen. For Terry Katz, the future of the Sapphire Society is brighter than ever with a legacy of strength to, to guide its newest leaders. The dedication of the women who started the Sapphire Society continues to fuel its efforts. In all of their work, they continue to be inspired by those original members and their commitment to making a lasting impact for the land and people of Israel. The Sapphire Society was the catalyst for a new age in Jewish National Fund USA, and as we celebrate its 25th year, we know its remarkable accomplishments so far are just the beginning. Women for Israel Giving Societies, Women's Alliance, $360 plus annual giving, High Society, $1,800 plus annual giving, Sapphire Society, $5,000 plus national giving, annual giving, Circle of Sapphire, $100,000 plus lifetime giving, Circle of Sapphire plus $200,000 lifetime giving. The full amount of, of the gifts must be made under the women's name to receive these benefits. The use of donor-advised fund and annuity giving towards a society membership will be determined based on the distribution of the gift. For more information or to become a member, please contact Sarah King at S-K-I-N-G at JNF.org. That's 25 extraordinary years celebrating the Sapphire Society, the Roots of Women for Israel. Author unknown from the Women in Israel section. Here's something from the Planned Giving section. Two little articles, actually. This first one is called Investing in Our Future by Matt Bernstein, CFP, JNF, Chief Planned Giving Officer. It's not every day that strangers from across the country experience Israel together and leave as lifelong friends, but it is every sunshine tour. For some attendees, it's their first interaction with Jewish National Fund USA. Others are lifelong supporters. The reasons for traveling to Israel are varied, but the urge to connect and take pride in the miracle of Israel is a common theme. Jewish National Fund USA Sunshine Tour is a 10-day journey through Israel that, in the end, may procl many proclaim as life-changing. Jewish National Fund USA Sunshine Tour is unique among our many mission experiences. It is designed for people 55 and over and typically attracts participants in their 60s and 70s who have active lifestyles. We pace the trip a little slower than other Jewish National Fund USA missions, so we can take a little more time to experience each site in depth. However, there is nothing pared down about this rich and full travel experience. We begin in Tel Aviv. 
a modern metropolis on the Mediterranean shores filled with historical significance, particularly related to the stories of Israel's independence. From there, we explore the Golan, the Kinneret, the Negev Desert, and Jerusalem with profound experiences along the way speaking to lone soldiers who joined the Israel Defense Force from the USA, visiting the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum and the Kotel as Shabbat begins. We will see firsthand the effect of Jewish National Fund USA contributions, bringing economic opportunities to northern Israel. Whether observant or not, we realize a strong, vibrant Israel is central to the well-being of the Jewish people. And after spending 10 days on this extraordinary tour, there is a sense of awe at the impact Jewish National Fund USA projects have on, uh, projects have on the land and people of Israel. Join us for the 2023 Spring Sunshine Tour, June 4th through the June 13th. The Sunshine Tour is designed for active adults 55 and older, whether it be your first or 100th visit to Israel. We promise you an experience you will not forget. That's investing in our future by Matt Bernstein, CFP, JNF, Planning, Planned Gift Op Giving Officer. We invite you to take a look at our itinerary at jnf.org slash sunshinejune. For specific information and trip details, please contact Matt Bernstein at mbernstein at jnf.org or, or by phone at 212-879-9305 extension 292 or Cheryl Lifland at, at jnf.org or 212-879-9305 extension 892. This next one is called Living a Living Legacy for Your Scholars, Breaking Down Barriers to Zionist Education. Author Unknown Harold Slotnick, 1942-2020, was one of two brothers born to immigrant parents, Abraham and Reba, in Philadelphia. He spent his life in the city, serving in the U.S. Army and developing a long-time career in real estate. A lifelong bachelor, he was also a passionate ballroom dancer. Fluent in his parents' Yiddish, Harold valued the time he spent in Israel and regularly donated to Jewish causes. To continue his legacy, the Harold Slotnick Endowed Scholarship was established by his estate as a needs-based scholarship fund that provides $1,000 to young American Jewish women interested in attending the Alexander Muss High School in Israel. This endowed gift to Jewish National Fund USA left in Harold Slotnick's will supports his mission of bolstering a stronger connection to, one, to, to one's Jewish identity and to Israel through education. Throughout his life, Slotnick was a passionate Zionist and believed a strong Jewish education was the most effective way to ensure the future of the community. With his passion for Jewish continuity and his desire to create a legacy, the Harold Slotnick Endowed Scholarship will carry on his commitment and help strengthen young women's relationships with their homeland and an understanding of their cultural history. Slotnick believed that Jewish National Fund USA is uniquely positioned to serve both of those functions at once through Alexander Muss High School in Israel. Jewish National Fund USA will distribute the scholarship to young women interested in studying at Alexander Muss High School in Israel whose, family, whose families demonstrate financial need. Young women who are selected to receive the scholarship will learn about Harold's life and legacy and communicate with his family sharing their own stories and appreciation. The scholarship fund will, help Harold, will keep Harold's name, 
will keep Harold's love of Zionist education alive for years to come and will enable more high school students facing financial barriers to attend this life-changing program. Learn more about how to leave your legacy with Jewish National Fund USA at jnflegacy.org or call 800-562-7526. That's leaving a legacy for young scholars, author unknown, and both of those were from the planned giving section. All right, and here's something from a section called JN Future. And this is called JN Future, represented at prestigious International Zionist Leadership Academy. Forging a Strong Zionist Future by Chad Holtzman. JN Future National President and Kayla Gloverson, Campaign Executive, JN Future Los Angeles and San Diego represented Jewish National Fund USA at the inaugural Zionist Leadership Academy composed of 30 young philanthropists from 24 countries, including South Africa, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Australia, and even Russia and Ukraine. JN Future represents Jewish National Fund USA's fastest growing demographic, where young philanthropists aged 22 to 40 come together in support of the land and people of Israel. The best and brightest young Jewish leaders were handpicked from every corner of the world to make up the ZLA. Kayla and Chad were chosen as Jewish National Fund USA's delegates and spent 10 months with their cohort strengthening their leadership skills through virtual workshops with some of the most influential Jewish entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and community leaders. To put their new training into place, into practice, Chad, Kayla, and their peers worked in small groups to create innovative project proposals and solutions, analyzing some of the most pres uh, pressing challenges currently facing the Jewish people worldwide, including Jew hatred, anti-Zionism, Jewish identity, new generation philanthropy, and the environment. Chad shares that, while we all come from our individual societies with our own national identities, we've learned that we must work together to address the current uprising of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionist movements. Kayla echoed Chad's thoughts and expanded. Despite having different languages, political systems, and even cultures, we were able to come together cohesively for a common cause, having Jewish pride and being given opportunities to share knowledge and resources among global Jewish communities that, have, that has never been more important. As part of the, the experience, Chad and Kayla attended two, uh, two in-person conferences. The first was in Mexico to begin the small project assessment and team bonding. The second, a 10-day intensive in Israel, including included tours and experiential lectures of Israel's reality and security situation on the ground, even showcasing some of Jewish National Fund USA's projects. When the cohort stopped at a Jewish National Fund USA-supported International Agricultural Training Center, Chad and Kayla were proud to be representatives on site. IACAT provides agricultural training to over 1,200 students annually from Asia and Africa, empowering thousands to create a better future for their communities. Chad and Kayla were also given the honor to lay a wreath with U.S. Marines at the annual September 11 Memorial Ceremony at Jerusalem's 9-11 Living Memorial, the only memorial site outside of the U.S. to include all the names of the victims of the horrific attacks. Now that Chad and Kayla have graduated from 
the ZLA and returned stateside, they look forward to staying in touch with their new Zionist colleagues from around the world and strategizing how the new world Zionist village to be built in Be'er Shiva over the next five years can best serve the needs of the global Jewry of all ages for decades to come. That was JN Future represented at prestigious International Zionist Leadership Academy, Forging a Strong Zionist Future, by Chad Holtzman from the JN Future uh, section. To get involved in JN Future, contact Melissa Asark Wittenberg at mwittenberg at jnf.org. Here's something from uh, the Alexander Muss High School in Israel section. Must students share 75-ish words on what Israel means to me? Author a note. I always knew Israel was important to me, but once I studied abroad at Mus, it became a part of who I was. I'll never forget the first time we went to the Western Wall and I finally felt like I belonged. Emotions, of course, threw me as I listened to the surrounding people joining together in song. Israel is my home, my country, and the land of my people. Kylie Ciara, Spring Semester 2022, Martinez, California. Israel is my home. I have always known that as an Israeli-American Jew. It always said, been said to me, and it's been taught to me. However, there had not been a moment in my life where I had truly internalized it. Now, after learning Jewish history and living in Israel, I have challenged my, ident my identity and realized that I don't want to be a bystander in my own history, but an active Jewish voice. Mikhail Schwarzman, Fall Semester 2022, Sudbury, Massachusetts. Israel is a special country with unbelievable diversity and beauty. When I set out on a four-day hike from the Mediterranean to the Kinneret Sea of Galilee with my fellow students at Mus, I was excited and a tiny bit nervous. Those several days challenged me physically, mentally, and spiritually. The experience deepened my love for and appreciation of the beauty and history of Israel and helped to strengthen my Jewish identity. Yoav Alperson, Fall Semester 2022, Rhinebeck, New York. Israel is truly a place like no other. The overwhelming sense of home surrounded with culture, nature, and beauty makes Israel such a wonderfully unique country. Last summer, I experienced the Western Wall on Shabbat, where I felt the connection to my Jewish roots in ways I had never felt before. Everyone singing and praying all in one place was such a magical, moving experience that strengthened my Jewish identity in ways beyond that which words can explain. Roby Auerbach, Summer 2022, Hollywood, Florida. Those are must students share 75-ish words on what Israel means to me, Author unknown from the Alexander Muss High School in Israel section. All right, this next one is called How the Ayalon Institute Changed the Tide of War by Deborah Pan Debbie Panath. At the end of David Pike Street in the central Israeli town of Rehovot is an unassuming kibbutz-style structure on a hill known as Kibbutzim Hill. The daring yet secret operations that took place beneath this building decided the fate of the fledgling Jewish state. Today, the compound known as the Ayalon Institute, also called the Bullet Factory Museum, stands as a testament to the young men and women who risked their lives for the sake of freedom. This unique place gives you an insight into the immense danger and secrets of those brave, ordinary people who lived extraordinary lives during the years 1945-48 united with one mission, 
to fight for the establishment of a Jewish homeland. During that time, the Ayalon Institute produced over 2.25 million bullets, approximately 10,000 to 14,000 bullets daily. Without those bullets, the 1948 War of Independence would likely have ended in defeat. Without a doubt, we owe the existence of the Jewish state to them. The year was 1945. The British ruled pre-state Israel and World War II had ended. Europe was still burning from the Holocaust and many of the Jews who had managed to survive longed to reach the Holy Land. Leaders in pre-state Israel determined that a real war against the Arab countries was inevitable and should the decision be made at the United Nations to establish a Jewish state. This proved to be a correct assumption when, on May 14, 1948, immediately after Israel's declaration of independence, six Arab countries, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq, together with the local Arab forces, attacked the new Jewish state across all its borders. The Haganah Command, which was the main pre-state military that became the foundation of the Israel Defense Forces, was chosen to prepare for this crucial fight as well as Ta'as, the Haganah section that dealt with the preparation of weapons. Secretly, Ta'az had already manufactured 600 Sten submachine guns, which became the first Hebrew weapon made in pre-state Israel. However, a greater problem needed to be immediately solved, the shortage of bullets. Yosef Abidar, a senior commander in the Haganah and later IDF deputy chief of staff, was chosen to head Ta'az, and he described the uh, grave situation. After preliminary examination and study of the production plan, the institutes, and the manpower, I found that the worst of the production plan, the, uh, the worst of all, was the lack of bullets. If we, could, if we would produce enough bullets, we could increase Sten production. The need for bullets loomed so large uh, following the Arab riots between 1936 and 39. Yehuda Arazi, the Haganah's acquisitions director, and his aide Katril Katz negotiated the purchase of 12 bullet production machines from Poland. The shipment, however, was discovered by the British and was rerouted to Beirut, Lebanon. Years later, this important cargo was recovered and made its way surreptitiously by train to Kibbutzim Hill in Rehovot, central Israel. The decision was made to build an underground ammunition plant at Kibbutzim Hill. A few factors made this an ideal spot. It was once a kibbutz uh, so the British wouldn't suspect uh, it, being, it being repopulated. It was located in an isolated area on elevated ground that would enable deep excavations. Near the kibbutz was one of the largest British army bases in the country and the Rehovot train station uh, that was usually packed with British soldiers. These were a bit too close for comfort, but as Yosef Avidar stated, if you wish to do something in secrecy, do it under the enemy's nose. This is the one place they will never think to search. The ammunitions plant's name was secretly coded in the Ayalon Institute. Above ground, the beautiful pastoral kibbutz was developed with two housing units, a dining hall, toilets, a barn, a large chicken coops, and vegetable fields. However, underneath lay, by, lay the Ayalon Institute. The institute, the size of a tennis court and dug 25 feet underground, was completed in just 22 days. In, uh, the uh, determination, the most precious resource. Engineer Osh, uh, Oshinsky worked on the aeration plant, and Yoel Yaari 
who was a Ta'az electrician, was in charge of providing the enormous amount of electricity required. The driver who was in charge of transporting the raw materials to the Ayalan Institute and transporting the bullets to the various destinations was codenamed Michael Tender. This is Michael Shore, former leader of Ta'as. Dr. Aram Eisen, a machine salesman, was enlisted to provide additional equipment that was essential to pr produce the bullets. His ingenuity enabled an immense import order for uh, strips of copper plates to be approved by the local authorities. He explained that local women were big consumers of lipstick and that required this type of material. These strips were transported to the Ayalan Institute instead. But who would be willing to work at the Ayalan Institute under these terrifying conditions? It was a death penalty if you were caught manufacturing weapons and the daily handling of gunpowder in a closed area could cause a fatal explosion. Yosef Avidar met with Shlomo Hillel and Dan Amir, two leaders of the scouts Zofim Alif group located at Pardis Hana, to ask whether they thought these young adults would be suitable for the task and willing to go somewhere without knowing any specific details or even the risk involved. There were about 72 members of Scouts Zofrim Alif from the Herzliya Gymnasia High School in Tel Aviv and from the Riali High School in Haifa, but only 45 members were selected to work in this secret mission. The others also moved uh, to, to the kibbutz and ran its operations above ground, unknowingly protecting the cover story. 22-year-old Yehudai Ayalan was one of the selected workers. We were not afraid. We were young and being together created an am amazing atmosphere of social consolidation. Everyone looked out for everyone. You are not alone and we understood the importance of our secret mission. We were Zionists singing and working in this closed space knowing that it was a very dangerous situation. A factory deafeningly loud machinery, 45 people and the smell of gunpowder. How on earth would these young people keep it a secret from the British who worked and lived above their heads? The answer? Bread and laundry. Yitzhak Nevo planned the placement of two uh, of the mechanical apparatus of the secret entrances in the laundry and bakery for this purpose. In addition to providing laundry services for kibbutz members, additional laundry services were offered to the residents in Rehovot and to locations outside of the kibbutz, even to British soldiers, to constantly operate the washing machines that made enough noise to mask the machinery. Without knowing, of course, the British helped to run an anti-British operation. The same applied to the oven that produced freshly baked bread so the smells from the bullets' production would not permeate the air. The bullet-making machines were moved in June 1949 to the Q Institute in Tel Aviv. Members of the Scouts group, member, uh, numbering 154 members and 44 children, left Kibbutz Hill on September 25, 1949, and founded Kibbutz Ma'agen, Michael, in northern Israel, between the Carmel Mountains and the Mediterranean Sea. For decades, the story of these young heroes remained untold and undiscovered until Shlomo Hillel mentioned it in his 1985 book. In 1986, the Ayalan Institute Museum was opened and declared a national heritage site. Today, when you enter the Ayalan Institute Museum's main hall, you see a magnificent exhibition of machines and workers. The walls are covered with original pictures and immediately you're enveloped in a historical time. 
when you enter the small laundry room, you would never guess where the secret entrance to the bullet factory is hidden. When you look outside the window, you can still see white sheets drying in the yard. There were about a hundred members of the kibbutz, but only the original members of the scout Sophim Alif knew about the secret life underground. Your senses are stimulated as you hear the noise of the machines, see the flashing lights that signal both mealtimes and imminent danger. You can peek into the court's blue light room that provided simulated sunshine to the young workers who suffered from the lack of being outdoors. In short, you, en you can enter into a secret world that was almost forgotten, but whose impact lives on. That was how the Ayalan Institute changed the tide of the war by Debbie Paneth. The quotes and names mentioned in this article are from the Ayalan Institute, Kibbutzim Hil Rehuvot, compelled and written by Eli Saadi and edited by Yehudite Ayalan. Right, and here is something called By Land, By Sea, By Air, stories of the clandestine immigrants who gave up everything for the right to a Jewish homeland, by Tanya Michaelian. In 1939, the British issued the White Paper, severely limiting the number of Jews allowed to enter Palestine. Still, hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees attempted to reach the shores of their ancestral soil. Until 1948, even in the wake of the Holocaust, these refugees were intercepted at sea and incarcerated at the Alit detention camp near Haifa for, or simil in similar camps in Cyprus. These clandestine immigrants were known as Ma'apilim, and their journeys took place by land, air, and sea, as they dared to dream about a return to Zion. Today, the 25-acre Elite camp, elite camp has been restored by Jewish National Fund USA in partnership with the Society for Preservation of Israel Heritage Sites. It serves as a museum that houses the stories of the Ma'apilim. Resilience, bravery, and longing are common threads wherever these prisoners of Zion were held before reaching the Promised Land. These are a few of those remarkable stories. From the Ashes of the Holocaust as I stood leaning over the boat's railing, I bade farewell to the European continent in the name of my entire family. All that was left of them, of their descendants, their Torah, their spirituality, was dust spread around the crematorium. So wrote Naftali Tulik Lau Lavi in 1945, on board the Mataroa as it sailed out of France. The ship was the first that brought Holocaust survivors to Free State Israel after World War II. Most of the passengers on board were children who had barely survived the Buchenwald camp, one of them being Tulik's eight-year-old brother, Yisrael Mayer. The rest of the family was murdered in the Holocaust. The Lau brothers were among the hundreds of thousands of European Jews, many survivors of con the concentration camps, desperate to reach the shores of the Promised Land, only to find themselves again incarcerated behind barbed wire at Atlit. Thousands weren't so lucky and drowned on these perilous journeys. Tulik and his brother were finally freed from Atlit and embraced their freedom in Israel. Young Yisrael Meir eventually went on to become the chief rabbi of Israel, the 38th generation in an unbroken chain of rabbis. By Land, the Long Journey Born in 1923, Solomon Erdaiti 
was the second son of a large Zionist family in Izmar, Smyrna, Turkey. From a young age, Solomon dreamed of emigrating to Eretz, Israel. In 1941, his father died, World War II was raging, and the Turkish government slammed extra taxes on the already struggling Jewish community. Solomon felt that he had nothing left to, in Itzmar and decided that it was time to fulfill his dream of Aliyah, immigration to Israel. At just 18 years old, alone, with money sewn into the lining of his clothes and clutching a few important addresses to help him on his trek, Solomon arrived by train in Aleppo with plans to continue by bus and foot. Unfortunately, his European suit attracted the suspicions of the authorities who believed him to be an Italian spy, and he was arrested. Solomon was later transferred to Rakaia prison, a prison camp where harsh conditions were magnified for the Jewish prisoners whose status was lower than the worst criminals. Solomon was then transferred to the French-run forced labor camp Hayatora in the summer of 1943. Conditions were so harsh that many prisoners took their own lives. From morning until night, the men were made to toil in dangerous coal mines and many died from injuries and work accidents. Some prisoners tried to escape, but very few succeeded. Those who were caught were promptly executed. Solomon Erdaiti wasn't yet 20 years old, but he knew that if he didn't find the strength to take his destiny into his own hands, he wouldn't live to see another year. In January 1944, at the height of a bitterly cold winter, he and two of his fellow prisoners fled the mines during the changing of the guards and lay low as they heard the shouting that their escape was discovered. Solomon watched in horror as they discovered the hiding place of his two friends and hauled them back to the camp. He continued to lie motionless as they searched for him. Miraculously, as evening fell, the search was called off and he, stated, and he started a three-day run across treacherous terrain. One and a half years after leaving Itzmer, Solomon Erudite finally stood on the border between Lebanon and the land of Israel. He managed to slip across the fence into the Israeli town of Metula and adopted the name Shlomo Carmel in honor of the mountain range that had welcomed him. He had finally reached home. By sea, an impossible price for freedom. 19-year-old Rene Ilau lived a carefree life in Mekne, Morocco. She, she delighted in her two young children and adored her handsome husband, Hayim, who ran a large and success, uh, successful textile store. Renee came from a wealthy family with the extended clan living in adjacent homes. But behind this idyllic life lay a secret. One fateful Friday evening in 1946, Hayim confessed that he was an activist in the underground Zionist movement in Morocco part of a network that helped Jews immigrate illegally to a pre-state Israel. The authorities had picked up on their activities, and he had to flee. Rene couldn't fathom leaving, and Hayim said he wouldn't force her, but he had to go in just two days. Rene went to consult, consult with her father, whose consul she trusted, and he agreed with her that the journey would be difficult and dangerous. Yet he advised her to go, saying, The people of Israel have been waiting for redemption for 2,000 years. God must clearly love your generation very much if the return to Zion is happening in your lifetime. Go, my child. That Sunday, the family boarded a ship carrying clandestine immigrants from North Africa, the Yehuda La Halevi. 
The sea was stormy, the quarters were packed, and the crossing difficult. One day Rene discovered that her little girl, little girl Gila, was running a fever and tried desperately to get her some help. Unfortunately, there were no doctors or medication on board, and she watched in horror as Gila's condition worsened and the life drained from her little body. Little Gila Elo died on board, and her body was returned to the sea. Rene and Haim were forced to look on helplessly as the ship continued to sail, leaving behind their beloved daughter in the waves. The ship approached Israeli shores on May 31, 1946, and was immediately surrounded by five British destroyers. Using tear gas, the soldiers boarded the ship, and the passengers were all expelled to one of the British detention camps on Cyprus. The Elo family and hundreds of others were housed in tents on the island, where conditions were harsh. Many of the inmates were Holocaust survivors who had become liberated only to be find themselves once more behind barbed wire and guarded by soldiers in watchtowers. Eventually, the Ilo family was given permission to make Aliyah much to their joy. Their first few years as New Olim were exceptionally hard, just as Renee's father had predicted. But thanks to Haim's fluency in Hebrew, life eventually improved. Renee grew to love her new homeland. Even though she gave birth to seven more children, she never forgot the ultimate price she prayed to pay to be a Jew in her homeland. By air, young, enthusiastic, and brave. In 1941, Violet Habib was just nine years old. Her birth city of Baghdad, Iraq, was the scene of one of the most violent pogroms seen against Jews, the Farhud, where over 200 members of the community were murdered and thousands more injured. Against the backdrop of these deteriorizing conditions, there was a rise in organized Zionist activity in Baghdad. The Habib children, six in all, were prepared to make aliyah without knowing the details of how or when. In honor of this commitment, Violet adopted the name Tamar. In 1947, Tamar was approached and told that she had two hours to get ready to leave. She was driven to a safe house where others uh, waited and told, her, told to lay low. At midnight, the group heard a truck and hearts beating wildly scrambled to climb onto it. The truck drove them for miles over dirt roads until in the dead of night they were let off to a field of thorns. Throughout the night, more groups were delivered to the field. Everyone huddled silently and motionless in the dark, not daring to breathe, just as they had been warned. Suddenly, the silence of the night was pierced by the roaring sound of an engine. The group was directed toward an aircraft. One by one, they were hauled up and practically thrown into the belly of a Curtis Commando transport plane. Within a few minutes, everyone had boarded the plane and it took off at full throttle. When they were finally safe in the air and out of the darkness, a youth leader spoke up over the roar of the engines. We're on our way to Eretz Israel. In three hours, we'll land. They're going home. They were going home. Tamara and her friends were the first group to take part in what would be known as Operation Michaelberg. In total, the Michaelberg operation ran three flights, two from Iraq and one from Naples, Italy, transporting a total of 115 clandestine immigrants. As dawn broke on the morning of that first successful mission, the plane landed on an improvised strip in the Yavnil Valley that was marked with bundles of burning hay under the noses of the British troops. 
Within minutes of landing, the group was taken by waiting trucks and scattered among the neighboring Jewish settlements to start their new lives. I climbed under the truck and we burst into Hebrew song, said Tamar. I felt like I belonged here and I'd been here forever and ever. And those that was by land, by sea, by air, by Tania Makalen. If you have your own story, please share it with us at byahad at jnf.org. That's B-Y-A-C-H-A-D at J-N-F dot O-R-G. Those are articles from a publication called Bayahad from the Jewish National Fund USA for winter of 2023. Here's a little ad from here. Don't miss any episodes of Israel Cast. Hear from fascinating personalities as they talk about the amazing work JNF is doing in Israel. Listen at jnf.org slash IsraelCast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, uh, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace. <laughs>